I'm Kristen, and this is the Explorer in You podcast. Now, what I've discovered after visiting five continents and some amazing places is that the greatest thing standing in your way of seeing the world is what you believe is possible. I believe that travel is for everyone on any budget, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming. So this podcast is all about unlocking the Explorer in you. You'll hear stories from people who will inspire you to set big travel goals and show you how to achieve them. Let's explore. Traveling responsibly can mean different things to different people. It's a big topic, and on this show, we cover a lot. From eco-friendly travel to socially conscious travel to animal welfare. My guest today has written extensively on this topic. Lola Mendez has explored over 60 countries, and she's the CEO and founder of Miss Filetalista, a travel blog focused on how to travel responsibly. She's also a freelance journalist, and she's written for numerous publications, including CNN Travel, Oprah, Lonely Planet, and Refinery29. What I liked about my conversation with Lola, other than how knowledgeable and passionate she is about this topic, is that she dispels a few myths about being a responsible traveler. One, that it's hard. Really, it just requires being a bit more intentional about our choices. And two, that being a conscientious traveler means that you can't travel well, when in fact, eco-travel can also be luxury travel. I also liked her non-judgmental attitude, and we talked about our past mistakes and how we've been able to learn from them and make better decisions moving forward. We cover a lot, and I hope after listening to this show, you feel empowered to find ways for your travel experiences to have a positive impact both on the planet and the places you visit. Hi, Lola. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about your journey to becoming a travel blogger? For sure. So I, I left New York City over five years ago, but I left the U.S. almost exactly five years ago. September 1st is my like travel-versary. Wow. <laughs> and it's coming up. Was living, yeah, it's soon. It's soon. And right now is the longest or the longest period of time I've been in one country for five years. Wow. <laughs> so it feels funny. And, you know, I'm in a country that also feels like home, but I feel very grateful to be here in Uruguay. So in New York City, I worked as a publicist. So I represented fashion, beauty, lifestyle, home goods clients. And I did branding, PR, marketing. And there came a point where I was about to be promoted. And I would be making a huge salary and have a, I'd be a director at 25, which is unheard of, right? And that is what I had been working towards for 10 years since I was 15 working in retail. And I had really climbed that ladder. But when I found out I was getting this promotion, instead of feeling thrilled or overjoyed, I felt doomed. I went to the bathroom and I cried, which was so unusual for me. You know, I was a New Yorker, like I was tough. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are these emotions? Like, what is happening to me? And I realized that I just felt stuck. And if I were to accept this promotion, which I was so honored to be considered for, it meant that I was never going to leave New York. I was never going to leave the fashion industry because being, being the child of an immigrant, once I was making real money, like six figures, I knew I wouldn't be able to walk away from that. Right. Especially or it'd be really age. hard at, at, yeah. at least. Yeah. And I had been working, I was a senior manager, so I was responsible for bringing on a lot of new clients. This is five years ago, right? So there were more and more fashion brands that were starting to have a philanthropic part of their business model. Mm-hmm. I won't say they were like completely philanthropic or eco or ethical, but it was a time where a lot of brands were starting to do like a 10%, like 10% of the sales of a certain thing would go to some kind of disaster relief. And I really connected with that. And I was working with one brand of uh, these ethically made underwear that were like sporty, sweat wicking, like really cool underwear, women owned, created by an organization that gave a micro loan for every single pair sold to women in need across the world. And they were made at a UN, a UN certified facility in Sri Lanka. So that was my first taste of like a real social enterprise. And I fell in love with it. And I was like, this is where I need, this is where my energy needs to be. Like this is women's rights. That's what makes my blood boil. Like that's where I want 
to wake up every day to be helping this initiative, not to be helping a major brand get more credibility, more publicity, whatnot. You know, I was no longer like connecting with that. And I, re I recognized this and I knew that I had to go. And I feel now, now I'm 30, I feel really, really grateful that at 25, I had that realization. You know, I think that's quite unusual. And I really trusted my gut and I listened to what I listened to like what my soul was telling me. And I, I, I'm super grateful for that. And I've never looked back and it's been an incredible five years. So initially my plan was to stay in Florida for one month. The day that my lease ended, my two year lease ended in my apartment was my third anniversary at my job. And the day my parents moved into an apartment on the beach in Florida. So it was like symmetry. The universe lined me up and said like, this is where you're supposed to go. So my intention was to go to Florida for one month spend some time with my parents. And then I wanted to move to Uruguay and start a social enterprise, empowering women. And I wanted it to be artisan based because my background was in, in fashion and marketing and, you know, commerce. And I thought I could create something, helping women make some sort of artisan product to then create financial stability. We have just like across most of Latin American countries and the world, we have very high rates of femicide here. And I wanted to find a way to help, help these women that were in abusive situations. After a few days in Florida, I met a Cuban guy and fell in love and stayed in Florida for five months. <laughs> so my plans were derailed. I want to go back to your moment of like clarity, your, your gut feeling when you were 25. You are really fortunate to have had that moment so young and not to just have that feeling, but to have leaned into it and, and understood that like, oh, this is the universe or whatever telling me like, this is not the right path. This is like a pivotal moment in my life. And if I say yes to that, it's kind of saying no to a lot of other things. I just think that's so interesting. I had a similar experience when I was, well, probably about five years ago of that stuck feeling. Like you, you just kind of know in your, your gut, like, something's got to change. Like I have to break out of whatever I'm in right now and do something else. But did you do it? Yeah, I started, I started asking questions and realizing that, you know, where I was in my life, I kind of needed more help. Like I, could, I was at a point where I only could take myself so far. So it was kind of a mental health journey that, that was also tied into job you know it's it was it's been this whole kind of five year long journey and I do not regret it's like the best decision I made to like invest in myself and my mindset and um, start thinking about my career your job takes up what like a third of your life typically for most of us not more, and, right? yeah or more so that's a really important piece to it um and so I'm feel like I'm still in the process, but I'm loving where I'm at. So, so that, that's always good. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually I had applied for the Auxiliares program in Spain, which is a teaching English program. And on a whim, I had been applying for jobs in Europe for years in my field and I would get through interviews and then they'd be like, oh, but you're not European. Hmm. And they're like, well, we can't sponsor you. So it always just came crashing down. And I was really eager to live in Europe. So eventually I applied for this English teaching program. And that, that is when I was leaving for that is when I started Miss Filatelista. And my intent was that, oh, I'm going to write about every single place that I go. I went to Italy for two weeks before I moved to Spain. And I wrote about, I think, maybe Rome. Mm. <laughs> And that was it. And so I, I kept up with my Instagram, but the blog really didn't take off until about two years later when I started traveling in Asia and I was traveling full time and writing full time and I had the ability to do it. Can you actually pronounce this for me? Your, the name of your blog? It's really difficult for people to pronounce, even like Spanish speakers, Italian speakers, French speakers. It's a very old word. So filatelista is the same thing in English as a filatelist, which means okay. a stamp collector. It's actually a very old Latin root word, and there's a similar word in Spanish, Italian, and French. When I created my blog five years ago, I was leaving the U.S., and I really wanted to find something that reflected my Uruguayan-American identity and brought these two languages together. And I didn't want it to be super 
obvious. Like I kind of wanted something mysterious. In hindsight, I probably would have not done that. And I probably would have done like live in La Vida Lola or something. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> hey, it's never too late. <laughs> but now it is what it is. So Fidelista, like I said, means stamp collector. For me, it's a play on words. So rather than collecting postage stamps, I'm collecting passport stamps. And it's also a tribute to both of my grandparents, maternal and paternal. Because my maternal grandpa was a stamp collector. That was his business in like the second half of his life. And I grew up looking at all of his stamp books and just hearing about his passion about stamps. And then my father's father, so my paternal grandfather, was a postman in Uruguay. So they both were involved in this postage system. And I believe that we are a product of our ancestors and both of them, my, my maternal grandfather traveled a lot. So I think he kind of sparked that, that inspiration within me. And then my paternal grandfather traveled too. He was, we, well, we believe he was born in Spain. A lot of mystery. But if, if he was born in Spain, then he traveled all the way across the ocean to Argentina or Uruguay when he was a young boy. And so I believe that sense of wanderlust is in my genes. That's such a beautiful connection and to a way to carry, you know, your, your legacy and your, your history forward. I think so too about, you know, kind of being in our, you know, our ancestors kind of like carrying through. My grandmother really loved to travel. Um, she was super curious about like the world and cultures. And I feel like sometimes it just really does feel genetic. You know what I mean? Not just that I was around her, you know, I grew up, um, living with her um, for a short time, but I feel like, oh, it feels like it's in the genes, like <laughs> that curiosity about the world. At one point, all humans were nomadic, right? And we were roamers and gatherers and hunters. So it really is in our genes and it makes sense that that would be passed down to us. But I, I do also want to mention about teaching English. It's one of my biggest regrets in my life because I was not qualified, even though professionally I had years of experience and I was a senior level in an agency, I never took a class about how to teach mm. Just because I speak English and I have a bachelor's degree does not make me qualified. And the kind of my, my peers, like the people I was encountering who were also doing this program, I wouldn't want them teaching my children. I wouldn't want me teaching my children. So I think it's something I really encourage people not to do unless they have a background in teaching, whether that be through academia or through profession. Because teach, teachers bear a lot of responsibility. You're, you're forming the next generation's minds. Right. And it, it's not something that should be taken lightly. And a lot of these teachers, I made a thousand euros a month and I was technically working 16 hours a week. I worked a bit more because my school was about an hour and a half outside of Madrid. So I couldn't go home for the siesta and come back. But so barely any hours, like let's say 60 hours a month for a thousand euros was unheard of. I was living with three women who were junior lawyers, junior accountants, junior architects, and they all made 650 to 800 euro a month. And they were working 60 hours a week and they were extremely qualified. They had master's degrees, they had years of experience. Mm -hmm. So it's also like a really damaging program to the economy that they pay these native English speakers more than what your, your average 30 something year old in a mid-level career position is making, you know, right. and it, it causes a lot of distaste towards the program and I was making more than the full-time teachers and it's really wrong you know yeah I I volunteered at a, a school near where I work and it was a program for lower income students and I just wanted to volunteer and I wanted to do something around reading because I, I was a literature major and I, you know, I love reading and, and, and literacy, you know, is really important. And when I got into the program, it was an excellent program and it was very structured and how it was broken down to teach English. Like I am an English speaker and I would never have thought about, you know, all these little things and ways to teach a language. I mean, it really is a skill. And if you don't have a program or structure to like set you up, especially for someone like me, who um, I'm not an, an educator, you know, I just speak English, you know, it, it was really eye opening how much really goes into teaching the, in a language to a non-native speaker. So yeah, very interesting about um, perspective about teaching abroad, because I know a lot of people 
that is their way to travel. And so you, you do write a, a lot about being a responsible traveler and that encompasses a lot, but curious to know what being a responsible traveler means to you. Absolutely. For me to be a responsible traveler, you need to make conscious decisions where you're considering not just the environment, but also society, right? So there has to be a balance. If you go on a trip that's super focused on the environment and you're being mindful about your plastic consumption, your electricity, what food you're eating, but you're only supporting foreign owned businesses, you're not being responsible. You're not being sustainable. You also need to sort seek out locally owned restaurants, seek out social enterprises, seek out tour companies that work with local tour operators, local restaurants, local hotels, is when you are only ever traveling with brands that are familiar to you, oftentimes it's not going to get back to local hands. And, and that's something we need to be conscious of and something I really think in this moment during the pandemic, a lot of people are thinking about their own community, right? I'm seeing a lot, right. of, a lot of support for shopping local within your own neighborhood, whether it's going to the bakery instead of the grocery store for bread, which is excellent and amazing. And, you know, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing these mom and pop shops around us close down and we're realizing that we have this buying power, this consumer power. So I would hope that people will take that same mentality and utilize it when they're traveling. That's not to say that all chains are bad. And there are actually many international hoteliers that have a lot of really great eco and social sustainability programs like Hilton. They have their Curio collection which is almost like their incubator for all things sustainability. Mm -hmm. I went to their kind of flagship in the Florida Keys, Baker's K, where they're testing out all these different things. And the attention to detail is amazing. So sometimes a hotelier that has more financial support has the ability to test out reusable water bottles and refill stations and to see if their consumers will use that or if they're like put off and they want a plastic bottle in the room, they have the ability to say, you know, leave your sunscreen at home. We have these mega things of a locally made mineral safe sunblock here and after sun, and you're totally welcome to use them. And they have a, I, I'm vegan, so I don't eat fish, but they have a, a dock to dish program where you can go fishing with a local fisherman so you, you, you are actually actively catching your fish. You see how it's done without nets. And then you go back and you, you see how they prepare it. There's a rooftop garden of local herbs. They source everything else within a hundred mile radius. So that kind of local driven mentality is really important. Whether you're staying at a Hilton or you're traveling on your own, you know, to, to ask questions. And I know this takes more time. I only fell into responsible travel by, by accident, you know, that I think my, my first kind of segue into it, I went to Thailand in 2015 for Christmas. So around December and January. And at the time I was teaching in Spain and I didn't have a lot of time and energy to plan this trip. I was also still doing freelance marketing and PR work on the side. So I made my hit list of like the cities I wanted to go to, the sites I wanted to see, the different foods I wanted to try. I didn't plan much else. And I really wanted to take a cooking class. And I thought, oh, once I get there, I'll figure it out. But when I was Googling it at the time, five years ago, a lot of the cooking classes were organized through hotel chains. And I was like, oh, there's gotta be a grandma somewhere who is welcoming people into her kitchen and taking them to the wet market and showing them all the different ingredients that are like ancestrally used for these ancient dishes that have been passed down from generation to generation. Right. And through that, I found this organization that's actually no longer, no longer operating in the same way, but it was called visit.org. And it was the first marketplace of tourist experiences provided by charities, social enterprises, NGOs. And I found a cooking class through there. And then I actually started working for them because I was just like, this is amazing. Like I mean, the, the quality of the experience I had to hear these stories about these dishes from someone who's grown up making them their whole life, whose grandmother taught them, who they're actively passing it on to their, their children and their grandchildren is so beautiful. Yeah. And then to be, to be in her kitchen and see you know, her way of life and be welcomed in like that, it was completely a transformative moment for me. And it was like, this, this is the way I want to travel. Right. On that same trip, 
I went to uh, elephant camp. I didn't know anything about riding elephants. I didn't Google it. I didn't even think twice about it. I had seen elephants at zoos when I was little and sometimes you could ride them. And I thought, okay, it's like a horse. So I was very guilty of not doing my own research, right? And I, I however, I specifically chose this camp because all of their employees were rescued from the sex trade. So I was still making decisions, thinking about how I can support women as I travel. But at the time, I had been, I had been not eating meat. I was pescatarian for like eight years. So you would think I would be a little bit more mindful about animals, but that wasn't really a part of my journey yet. And, and I rode this elephant bareback and I, in the moment I felt, oh, like something about this isn't right. This elephant doesn't seem happy. Like this is so unusual. It's not even comfortable. Like, why am I doing this? You know? And while I was there, I told the woman who was working, oh, I really want to go see the tigers. And she, the, the woman who was working was very pregnant. And I think she was emotional from that. And she started crying. And I was like, oh, God, what have I done? But she started to explain to me what happens at these tiger temples and how they, how they drug the tigers and they kill the cubs and they do all this stuff. And by the end, we're like sobbing together. But I should have already known that before I went to Thailand because I could have found that information online. So th this trip to Thailand really opened my eyes to doing my research before a trip because I never wanted to make a negative impact again. You know, I wanted to be mindful. And in, in these five years or four and a half years since then, I've learned so much. I am not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfectly sustainable traveler. I'm learning new things every day, trying out new things to see if they work for me. I'm con constantly being conscious of changes that I can make. And so I think, I think it's a good, a good mindset to go into it with it. You know, overnight, you're not going to figure it all out, but research is key and asking questions is key. I've written about this a lot on my blog and for different publications, especially when it comes to an animal experience. On the website, if you're seeing photos of people holding the animals or touching the animals or feeding the animals or bathing the animals that are not the employees, that's a big red flag. Because just like we were talking about, you should be qualified to work with children. You should be qualified to touch animals. You know, they're, 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 not, they're not toys. They're not stuffed animals. They're living beings and they need pro proper care. So that's a big red flag for me. Well, I'll share with you that we went to Thailand in about I think it was about 2014, 2014, 2015. And I did a ton of research on the, on elephants. And I was, I was not happy with what I found. I'm like, I'm not going Perfect. to like, they're not domesticated animals. Uh, they shouldn't be. Um, and that whole process is pretty alarming. But while we were there, we were there with another couple and you know, one of our friends really wanted to have an animal experience and they're like, okay, so you're not going to do um, elephants, but what about tigers? And so, you know, do quick research, right? It's like our last day there and we're trying to figure out like how to spend our time. Do a quick research. The website looks like it now in hindsight, it's like it was made to look like a sanctuary, of course. not a tourist attraction. And so we kind of felt good about that. Like, oh, we're supporting the sanctuary that, that helps tigers. And we did a quick like search to see if there's any negative things, but we didn't find anything. But that was like a quick, like, you know, few minute search. So we did, we ended up going to the tiger temple. And when we got there, um, yeah, it's like little bells are kind of like going off, like, hmm. Why would a huge tiger just let you sit near it? Like, that's not normal. Um, you know, like, and then I think one of our friends said, are they drugged? Like, I'm not even sure how that popped in, but it was probably like kind of a gut feeling. So we had that experience. And then I think we came home and like within a few weeks, they had shut that temple down. Mm. And it was just so like devastating to get confirmation of like all the horribleness that was going on and that what we felt was accurate and that we didn't do our, our due diligence. You know, I had done it with the elephants, but I didn't, you know, I was on the trip and spur of the moment was like, oh, this is probably fine. And, you know, I'm a huge animal lover. I have like two cats and a dog and we would get more animals if we could. Um, so yeah, super uh, tough, but 
like you said, no one's perfect and you can only learn from your mistakes, which I feel if I didn't learn from that, then it would just be like a total waste. I don't know. I'm sure people are listening and thinking, well, I've done this and I've done that. And um, it's just like, once you know, you know, once you kind of have that awareness, then you have to make sure you make different decisions moving forward. And like you said, do your research and be very conscientious about how animals are treated, where your money's going, you know, what, what potential impact you're going to have when, when you visit. So that was a big learning moment for me, trying to like move on from it in a positive way, but it's tough. I'm sure a lot of people have, you know, done similar things. And then just like, um, like SeaWorld, you know, we all went to SeaWorld growing up. And then, you know, once you start to understand the impact to the animals, it's like, oh, okay, well, now I can make um, a better decision, you know, moving forward. You can't know what you don't know. And what's most important is what you're saying is that once you do realize the truth, and you see the harm that's being caused, you step away from it, and try to inform other people, you know, a, a lot of us, we, we prioritize our own wants and our own need to do something over what it, the negative effect it could cause. And, and we see that in, with over-tourism, right? Or we see that with places that, you know, people who want to go to the north or the Arctic to see polar bears, but they're going on these cruises that are really polluting the water. Like, you, you, your desire to see a polar bear is actually hurting the polar bear's habitat, you know? So. Right. Yeah. And you're making me think of like the Galapagos Islands, places like that, where, you know, you want to see these amazing animals, but what's the consequence of that? Um, and is it worth it in the long run? So I, I saw your, your challenges that uh, on your, on your website, and I thought they were really great. And I just wanted to know where the idea came from. Oh, I think I did them once a month, every month in 2018. I might've no, you know what? I think it was 2007. I'm also a journalist, so at that time I wasn't writing as much. Now I'm a full-time journalist. Like it's what I do all the time, and that's why I maybe blog like once a month or so, especially in this moment of not traveling. I don't have a lot of fresh uh, places to be sharing. But I will, you know, people were constantly coming to me and asking me, "Okay, how can I get into responsible travel?" And I thought it'd be easier to break it down by different by different topics and write a thousand words more or less about what I have learned and through my own experience, my own mistakes, my own conversations I've had with charitable organizations and NGOs within that realm. So if I remember, I, I believe the first one is about, is about uh, being an ethical animal, animal wildlife viewer. And I, there's another one about uh, eliminating plastic. There's another one about sustainable beauty to travel with. There's another one about you know, how, how you can support the homeless population in the places that you visit. There's one about hotels. There's one about choosing transportation. So really to try to focus on like key facets of the industry and how you can be conscious and mindful of your impact and easily make changes that reduce your negative impact. You know, like none of these suggestions are outrageously expensive. They're all, they're all attainable. They're, they're conscious decisions that we have to make. And they, they take time to make a habit, you know? So you, you have to give yourself some grace. And just doing the research or even listening to this podcast shows that you are aware that perhaps you could make some changes in your life to reduce your negative impact, have a stronger positive impact on the places you visit. And that's an excellent first step. Yeah, it, you did cover a really wide range of topics. And so I wanted to start with what you consider to be the, if we had to name like the three most impactful ways to travel responsibly, could you, can we, can we kind of go over what the, what you think those would be? Because there's a lot to cover. I know you talked about so much, which was fantastic. And um, I loved reading them. I think for maybe people who are just thinking about responsible travel and starting, if they can kind of understand where they can have the most impact might be helpful. Sure. I think I, I, I can only really speak to my own personal journey and it might not be super relatable to people who aren't vegan, but for me, the largest thing I do in my life, which reduces my environmental impact is not eating animals. 
I guess beef beef has the largest well the agriculture in general has the largest contribution of of carbons and gases to the environment which are hurting our ozone hurting our you know it, it, the the impact is unlimited it's huge so yeah. i feel like that's the largest thing i do in my life to offset my my existence as a human you know we we are not sustainable beings after that so i if you can I would try to fold in some plant-based meals while you're traveling. Not saying you have to go fully vegan. It's a huge misconception that as a vegan, you miss out on flavors or traditional dishes. And that is not true. I've, I've been vegan now for three years, but before that, for 11 years, I didn't eat meat. I was a pescatarian and I've been to 60 something countries. I ate well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I really enjoyed what I was eating. You know, I joke that like, this is my travel, my travel food baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back a single meal that contributed to it. <laughs> and I think because a lot of other countries, meat doesn't take as a big of a space on your plate as uh, it does in the U S it's expensive. Like we were in Peru and they're like, you know, we kind of only have meat on like special occasions, like, mm-hmm. or, you know, that in the past, it was like a special occasion type thing. And the plate is filled with like a lot of other different types of food. And I think um, it is that way in a lot of other places. So then the, the non-meat food is just delicious because Absolutely. that's the main food. Yeah. And even with meat dishes, what really makes them flavorful is all the stuff you put on it. Right. And that's all plants and herbs. You know, so you put that on cauliflower or tofu instead, you're not missing much of, of the sensation. And so my, my kind of trick away, my trick around this is one of the first things I do, like I said, to cooking classes, when I get to a country, is go on a market tour or food tour or a cooking class. And I don't always do vegan ones. I let them know in advance that I'm vegan. But this way I can start to understand what the traditional dishes are. I can ask people, how could I veganize this? Like instead of fish sauce, what can you use? And they use maybe a soy, like soy sauce or something. Mm-hmm. And, and through that knowledge, I can then go out to a restaurant I have now learned how to say vegan, no meat, no egg, no cheese in the local language. Usually I'll record someone saying it and then write, write down how, how it sounds to me, not necessarily the spelling, but how it sounds so I can try to repeat this word in a way that I'll be understood. And I, yeah, I've just, I've never, I've never missed out on a dish. So try it. <laughs> and then the second thing would obviously be your mode of transportation. Uh, Globally, transportation is also a huge factor to damaging the environment. So the way I traveled the last five years, I was mostly in one continent at a time and would move around as often as possible by train, bus, a shared car. I would you know, really try to limit my flying. I took ferries and I'm not perfect. I, I've still flown a lot. And when I'm traveling for work, like for a press trip, I can't really control my method of transportation. Like they, they offer me a flight and it, but I do try to focus on like one continent. Like 2020 was going to be about uh, it, Central America and Latin America and the Caribbean, which, which it really has been since for about a year, like June of last year. But this is obviously on pause because of the pandemic. But I spent about eight months in the sub-Indian continent, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka. There I had to fly. But within India, I took a lot of trains even for 24 hours, like long distances. In Southeast Asia, I got around a lot by, by train and bus. It, and honestly, it was, it's less expensive also. It's easier. You don't have to worry about checking your bag, losing your bag, losing your luggage, getting to the airport three hours early. I love train travel. I'm like a train nerd. <laughs> I, I love efficient travel. Um, and I just that's one of the reasons why I like going to other countries is because in the U.S. it's not – just not quite there um no but in other yeah, countries try. they're trying yeah new routes that will make sense eventually but the price points are still pretty unattainable i think for like a casual traveler okay. in the u.s and also when you take a tr- an overnight train or bus you're saving a night in a hotel also right you know so it, it can really be cost efficient or you can spend a lot of money on first class and have all the comforts that you want you know you, it doesn't have to be a crammed space where you're sleeping in the chair like, oh, I slept on a bus all night. It could be like, oh, I actually enjoyed my experience. Reclining seats that were like super comfy and yeah. somebody was handing out coffee and wet towelettes on the bus. I was like, this is luxury. Like, right. this is first class bus. 
And then I think the third easiest thing you could do is cutting back on your plastic use. So it's so simple to have a reusable water bottle. So, so simple. And restaurants are always going to have potable water. So maybe if you're in a place that doesn't have a lot of refill stations, they're like easily accessible. Wherever you eat, you can ask for a refill. If you're completely out of water and you're not hungry, you know, maybe get a tea or a cookie, something small, and then ask if they'll fill up your water bottle. No one's ever said no to me. Sometimes I paid a few cents mm-hmm. for it, which, which I'm fine with. And then should you truly not be able to find a place to refill, I will buy like a glass bottle of sparkling water if I need to. I, I don't know the last time I bought a plastic water bottle, but that, that's something I've been working on for about four years. When I was living in Spain, I bought a liter plastic of water, bottle of water every day. And in Spain, you could drink the water from the sink. Mm. what was I doing mm-hmm. like it was so unnecessary you know but I just I just didn't know and there you know there's a lot of conversations about straws for most of us who are able-bodied straws are just kind of unnecessary and we don't really even need them at all I mean, I, I have plenty of reusable straws I have bamboo metal and glass I still lose them a lot I just wrote an article for another for another website I think 50 ways to say no straw please around mm. the world it's another one of the phrases I look up, look up when I get to a place like no bag, no straw. And sometimes I'll even just have a picture on my phone of like a straw with an X or like a bag with an X when I can't communicate verbally, you know, because I, I always try to think of these things front of mind. Like when I order a drink, either showing my reusable straw, trying to say no straw or just pulling up the picture and being like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's a great idea. These are things that take time to make habits and plastic bags. I feel like most people have a good hang on that. I feel like most people are like all about their tote bags. Now I grew up using tote bags. So it's just completely natural to me. I actually, I've been in Uruguay for nine months and I did not know until one month ago that all of our bags in the grocery store are biodegradable because I would just oh, that's always awesome. bring in my own bags. And I think I got on like a long walk longer than I expected. And I hadn't had breakfast and I was like, Oh, I need some fruit. And they wouldn't let me just put the sticker on the fruit. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to use a plastic bag. And they're like, Billy grande. Like <laughs> it's not plastic. And I was like, this nice. is amazing. And it's a law here. So I was, I was impressed with that, but still it's something that's important to remember when it comes to eliminating plastic is that re- recycling is not the answer. Recycling is really a farce and it gives us a false comfort that we are doing something good, especially in the U S you know, where we just, we sort our things, we put them outside and someone else takes care of them. We never see the landfill. Like everything's good. I recycled. So I'm a good person. You're not a bad person because you recycled, but it's better to just reduce, right? Like this is, this is the message of Greenpeace. This is the message of a lot of companies. So buying things that are compostable or like plant-based plastic isn't necessarily better because right now, at least in the U S we don't have a system in place to process those plant-based plastics and it don't break down overnight. You can't just toss it in your compost and then the next day it's, it's powder and in there. Right. It still takes time. So when you can just try to try to focus on using reusables, I have a collapsible coffee mug that I actually initially bought for uh, fruit juice stands in Southeast Asia. I was like, man, I'm using a lot of, I'm using a lot of plastic cups, right? Like what is something I can use to replace that? And these, these mugs are silicone, so you can compress them. They're very easy to clean. That's great. Every year I try to make a resolution based on how I'm going to be more environmentally conscious. But two years ago, I stopped buying anything with polyester unless it was recycled plastic. Like I have on now girlfriend leggings, which are made from I think 25 plastic water bottles that have wow. been uh, rescued from Taiwan, which is pretty cool. They're really soft. I love them. <laughs> they do not pay me to say this. <laughs> um, and then this year, my resolution was to stop using tea bags because I didn't know that tea bags had a lot of plastic in them. And just in general, the oh, I didn't either. Yeah. In, in the pouch and in the string and the staple, I mean, all of that is just such unnecessary packaging. So now I have quite a few metal containers of different sizes, but I also use a French press at home. So I put in my loose leaf tea in the bottom. The French press is like you would do coffee. You can make amazing tea. Oh, perfect. We have a French press too. 
and I, I, yeah, you can make tea out of it. It's great. My, one of my cousins taught me this and I was like, nice. Good tip. (laughs) Those are my top, top three ways that you can limit your impact while traveling, but also in, in your own life at home, especially in this moment of the pandemic. What a great time to start practicing these things. You know, what a great time to start thinking about them within your own home and build the habits so for when we do get out there again and start traveling, they'll already be normal to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, it seems like the onus of sort of recycling and environmental issues sometimes gets put on the individual when mm-hmm. it's really huge companies that are doing most of the polluting. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting narrative that's been put out there. It's definitely important to, it is like our individual acts do make a difference and they're important at the same time, at least, you know, in the U.S. lobbying and like understanding, you know, your, what your political voice is uh, in terms of making changes is important too. And so on your website, I saw the term eco-luxury travel. And I was so interested in that. You say that eco-luxury travel doesn't have to be irresponsible travel. And so can you define that? I kind of touched on it earlier when we were talking about Hilton, right? But Hilton isn't the most expensive hotel chain. So for me, it was really important to create this narrative where responsible travel is not pitching a tent in a free campsite and having canned beans for dinner. You know, that you can make responsible decisions no matter what type of traveler you are. If you're a backpacker and a camper, excellent, amazing. That's super cool. If you like five-star hotels, you can still be conscious in the, in the properties that you support. And like we were discussing, a lot of these higher-end properties that have more money to play with, they can make really impactful programs. And when you're looking for that, I think it's important to see if they have It's good to have some programs across the board, like, okay, we've banned straws, but if they have the same social sustainability programs around the world, that can be kind of problematic because it's never helpful for a foreigner to go into a place and say, ah, this is what you need. Like you need help with education. You need help with this. No, they need to be surveying the community and asking them, where are the opportunities here? How can we support you? Like, is literacy the issue? Is cleaning up the beach issue. So try to look for those luxury properties that are working with the local community to help them solve the issues that they're dealing with. This is just like, it's similar to the the Tiger website that kind of, it it fooled you into thinking that it was sustainable and it was a safe haven for these animals. So it's easy for us to fall, fall into those traps that's called greenwashing, right? So you want to be mindful of that and try to support organizations that are conscious about local effort. And it, it can be anything. I mean, it can be that they work with a surfing social enterprise to organize surf tours for their guests. And like, rather than having their own surf instructor, they bring in from Australia to Peru, they work with a Peruvian group and, and you know, or maybe they have a market within within the hotel where they bring in local artisans who are sharing their handcrafted goods and, and they can charge a, a heftier fee because they know they're targeting a wealthier clientele and that could support them for months, you know? There, there's so many opportunities when it comes to eco-luxury travel. And I have stayed in places that for work that are beautiful. I mean, beyond my wildest dreams and they're using recycled rainwater and they're not using bleach on the sheets and they have education programs for all of their staff. And it does not take away from the luxury experience, you know, and in these experiences, I wasn't paying for it because I was writing about it. Right. But if I were a consumer, knowing that's where my hard earned money went to support other people, I feel even better about my vacation. Right. So there's so many opportunities with that. Um, Shangri-La is a luxury hotel chain that has a lot of great programs. I'm trying to think of a few others. A lot of the places that I've gone are more like one-off luxury resorts in maybe Indonesia or Mexico and things like that. Uh, fortunately, there's so much information out there now that you you can easily kind of make a hit list of 
maybe 10 properties you're interested in, you can go to booking, compare prices, and then go to their website and book with them directly, right? And, and compare and contrast and read reviews and, and ask questions, you know, especially if you are, if you're the type of traveler who works with a travel agent, let your traveler agent know what, what's important to you. You know, what, what will you not accept? And, and, but you also have to be prepared that what they say might not be true. I went on a cruise in February and I had been talking to this organization for a long time because cruising is obviously not aligned with my, my passions personally or professionally, but they were telling about all the social impact they make. And I was like, this is really amazing. And you deserve some recognition for this. There's many cruise companies you know, they own the restaurant, they own the tour company, they own the shop, and people are just going to their businesses around, you could be anywhere in the world. This organization was working with local tour operators, they were finding, they find craftspeople who don't really work with other tour organizers. Like I went to this, the last woman in this town in Peru who still makes traditional hats, and she did a demonstration for us, and it was such an amazing experience. And you can't even Google her, like she doesn't even have a website. So like they really took the time to find interesting local experiences. However, they had told me there was no, not that there was no plastic on board, but no plastic water bottles. And when I got on board, my room had like five plastic water bottles and all the restaurants, there were plastic water bottles. And this has been, this is um, early February. So coronavirus had begun in, in Asia and in Europe, but it hadn't come to Latin America yet. And so I asked one of the waiters, you know, is this, a precaution because of the virus and they're like no what are you talking about and I was like ah. <laughs> and you know it's possible that the, P the PR team wasn't necessarily in sync with, right. the, with the team on board and there were quite a few other things they told me about like the way they deal with their waste from the ship and and some process they have to collect plastic from the ocean and when I asked crew members when I asked the captain they were like I don't know what you're talking mm. about so I was super disappointed on that and that, that's an example of how you can maybe have some social sustainability aspects, but environmentally, it's gone. So at the end of the day, I told this, this company I, I couldn't write about them. Because at that point, it's kind of a wash, right? Or I could write about it. Honestly, I could say these are all the excellent things they do socially, but environmentally. Not so much. Yeah. It was greenwashing, yeah. you know? And, and I hope they will take that feedback and have internal conversations. Like I, I believe there are so many things you can do in a non-ego hotel to become more eco. You can, you can unplug your lamp. You can refuse to have turned down service. Don't open the water bottle. Don't open the shampoo. Like bring your own stuff with you. Even if you're somewhere that doesn't have any of their own initiatives, you yourself can have your initiatives that you use and you operate no matter where you are at home or out and about. So you wrote something interesting on your website and it was about why you shouldn't give money to beggars while traveling. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you should do instead? That, that, that concept, that learning came from, I spent six months in India and I was doing a lot of work with different charities using my, my expertise. So helping them build up their marketing and social media, or when I was helping charities develop tourism programs for this marketplace I was working for. So we were talking about volunteerism before I support high level, high skilled volunteerism. That makes sense to me when you can really contribute. A lot of the organizations I was working with were supporting people who were on the streets. And I was learning a lot about the different drug abuses and the different pimp and prostitute relationships that were happening and what, what happens when you're giving money, you know, that, and it really opened my eyes. And personally, I couldn't bear knowing that I had contributed to someone's like, self-sabotaging or harmful behaviors or a violent situation that they might be involved in. And so I learned to in, instead give food. But this is something I already did my whole life. I volunteered a lot in homeless shelters in LA and New York and always asked people like, what do you need? You know, like, do you need a scarf? Do you need a burger? Like, what is it? And a lot of the times I would get told to fuck off. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but it's just the way it is, right? And be told, no, give me money. And I would say, uh, I can't. So in India, I learned a lot more because in the States, I would have bought someone something with a tag on and not thought about it or given them food that was packaged and just said, okay, here you go. Enjoy your meal. Adios. I learned in India that these, a lot of the kids, especially where I was living in Jodhpur, 
they'll take the package of crackers or the banana and sell it like, and get the money and you don't know what they're going to do with it. So I would, every time I went to the city, I would buy this gigantic bag of these like fiber nutrient rich crackers, which were individually packaged. So they weren't, they weren't eco-friendly at all and bananas and little water bottles. And when the kids would come and ask me for money, I would ask them, are you hungry? And they would say yes. And I would take it out and I would open it and they'd be like, no lady, no open, no. Like they get so upset. And I was like, I know your trick. <laughs> I went once, like once they realized that, okay, she's not going to give me that. They, I, I would stay there until it was all gone and more kids would come and they would eat, eat so much. And you know, for me, that felt like the, the least I could do. I, I can never ignore someone who is in need. My sister, who is a lawyer, feels the opposite. She thinks when you should give someone what they asked for and it's not your business. And I, I understand that train of thought also. So I'm not, I'm not judging people who give money. It just, for me, it personally doesn't work. And then I think in that piece, I wrote about how there's one organization that creates kind of like care packages that has hand sanitizer and a few other things. Yes, you did. Yeah. So, I can't remember the name of the organization, but. Um, you know, I can link to that article though in our show notes. Oh, cool. That would be great. So I've, I've held on to that through, through my travels, like those learnings and trying to figure out how I can support people. I know a lot of people do have that perspective of, you know, you give them money and get, they do with it is their, um, their choice. So I, that's why I was so interested in, in your perspective. It's a, it's a little bit different. And I think it just gives another approach to, you know, helping people. Yeah. And you don't know what people need too and what, what they want. It's just, it's tricky. You know, everyone needs something different. It's interesting that your experience in India of, you know, after you stayed consistent with, I'm not giving you money that, that the kids actually did eat and they did need the food and the water. So. And this is almost daily. And there was another family outside the restaurant I would go to for dinner I don't know if you're very familiar with Indian food, but a tali is like a, a platter of like four or five small dishes okay. and a chapati, which is like a tortilla and some rice. So it's a very full dinner. And I, I would buy one for them every night and every night the father would say, okay, money. And we would laugh mm. and I would leave. And every night I would come and he would tell me like, oh, do they have this curry tonight? Be like, I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask. And you know, that cost me $4. It cost me nothing. And I, I respected him. He was still, he was still asking for money. Like, I, I get it. He had, he had the baby, like he had a family to provide for. And I, I felt like we kind of had this like humorous relationship where he knew I wasn't going to give him money, but right. he knew that he could depend on me to help provide at least one meal for his family a day. I, I think it's really important to know, to remember that we're all much closer to being homeless than we are to being billionaires. True. And you never know what could happen in your life. And when I was volunteering in soup kitchens and shelters in LA and New York, people had all kinds of stories about how they ended up there and people from people from all walks of life, all creed, all colors, all nationalities. You know, there's not one particular group of people that are more susceptible to ending up losing their income and losing their housing. It, it should happen to any of us. So you we have to support these people. And then are you guys on lockdown in Uruguay or? There was a suggested quarantine in the beginning, which I think people took quite seriously. We have a very old population. I believe we might have the oldest population in Latin America. And it's very customary here for people to live with their parents, their grandparents. So I think the initial fear was, oh, this virus is mostly affecting old people. We need to take care of our abuelas. So we're going to stay home. Nice. In Uruguay, we surpassed 1,000 cases about a month ago. And in this last month, we have about 500 new cases. We're, we're a very communal place. We're 3.5 million people. It's quite small. And we, we think about each other and we worry about each other. Gatherings over 10 people were limited. Schools were closed. New homeless shelters were opening up. I think we have some of the highest ICU bed capacity per capita in Latin America. We're doing the second most amount of testing in the world per capita after New Zealand. So for a little, for a little country, we're, we're in a good place. We are. I think it's been five or six months. We've had 1,500 cases. That's so pretty incredible. And only 40 deaths. And there's actively, I think, two or three people in ICU. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's going so well there. So where can people find out more about you? 
yeah, they can go to my website, which is Miss Filatelista. I'm sure you'll link to it because I know that's hard to spell. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm Miss Filatelista also on Facebook, but on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Lola Anna Mendez. I believe Pinterest, I'm also Miss Filatelista. And I would say most of my like travel eco-focused stuff is on Instagram, Twitter. I'm talking a lot about work, journalism, tips, this and that. And Facebook, I'm mostly sharing my articles or my blog posts. So depending on, you know, what you feel like you could learn from me or benefit from being a part of my community, those are the kind of the three ways I use the platforms. Great. So we have lots of options to find you. Yeah, they'd love to connect with me, people. Awesome. And then, so my last question, what was your most meaningful travel experience? Okay, I had, I had an article published yesterday on Refinery29, which is a big dream publication for me. I'm really excited about that. Yes, congrats. Thank you. It was my first time writing for them. And I wrote about a tattoo I got while I was in Peru. And it's a symbol for Pachamama, which is Mother Nature, right? And I've always felt a deep connection to nature. And I, in this article, I got to write about, I mean, I got to say colonizer. I got to say genocide of indigenous people. Like I got to really speak my truth for a major publication. And I was like, a lot of that gets edited out in my article. So I was really happy. But this piece I was writing about my experience going, going to Peru, going to Machu Picchu. It's my first time in the Amazon, which I've always felt a connection with. But here, here in Uruguay, the Choruas, which my great-grandfather or great-grandfather was Chorua, now there are only 150,000 people who can even claim that lineage because they were completely wiped out by Spaniard colonizers through disease, but then through, through murder as well. So there's such, a, there's such a gaping hole in my identity and things that I don't understand about myself that I believe have been passed on to me through my ancestors. So I believe that craving for that knowledge that understanding has inspired me to do a lot of travels where I'm going to villages and meeting with people who are practicing ancestral methods of life or cooking or dress or ways of worship and spirituality and finding those how how that relates to myself and I've been told repeatedly the people who don't know me that that I, I have the answers within right and I when I was in Peru Machu Picchu for me it was a really a really heavy incredible energy and I kept hearing songs about Pachamama and then I was in the the artisan the artisanal market and I found this design these areas that were really beautiful and I asked the woman oh what is, does this symbol have a meaning and she was like yeah it's the Inca sign for Pachamama and I was like of course it is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and then I went and I did a ceremony with a Peruvian Incan shaman. That was a really moving experience in my version of an ethical way, which is supporting someone who's studied this and learned it from their ancestors. And, you know, it's not commercial. Like they really are, are passing along the spiritual healing, like not something that's led, let's say by a white person in Peru. Right. So. Something that's authentic. Yeah. After he did this, this ceremony, which is to cleanse your, your chakras, which I had no idea chakras were a, a concept outside of, you know, Hinduism or yoga. And then mm. to hear this man talking about chakras for the Incas, I was like, this is incredible, these, these correlations. And then at the end, he asked me if I wanted to do a Pashamama blessing ceremony where we make an offering to Pashamama. And I was like, ah, another omen. And maybe I'm a little Latina and superstitious, but I was like, ah, this is just lining out in front of me. And then I decided like, okay, I'm going to get a tattoo tonight over one of my chakras of the Pashamama symbol. So this particular experience isn't necessarily super sustainably minded in an eco way. But for me, it, it was a really moving experience for me because I really felt like I kind of broke through some of my own understanding about my passion about nature and where mm-hmm. that comes from and, and feeling really connected. I can send you the article. I'm really proud of it. Yes, please do. We can link to that as well. A friend that I was traveling with at a tattoo parlor, I had spent some extra time in the market. I was just amazed by all the quinoa and all the potatoes. I was just like, oh my God, how can there be so many different types of these foods? <laughs> and she had gone on and I showed up. And as I walked in, there was a song playing about Pashamama. And the tattoo artist that day was a woman. And I was just like, okay, like, I, I hear you universe. It's meant to be. 
and even that kind of concept of believing in the universe and symbols from from nature i believe stems from my indigenous ancestry and that's something like what we were talking about before i didn't tap into until i left the us like even all of the synergy i mentioned before about the apartment my lease ending my job ending my parents moving at the same day mm-hmm. i was in tune with those things but i didn't necessarily trust them so one of my biggest lessons the last five years has been to trust in the timing of the universe and to know that more opportunities are always coming and you can't mess something up that's that's not right for that that is right for you you can't mess something up that's right for you so when when you start to feel bad about something it's just not the, the path that you're meant to be on you know yeah I love that story and thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing it. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and your passion for being a responsible traveler, caring about the environment, caring about other humans just is really inspiring and it really comes through. And I think it comes through in your writing, definitely. So thanks for sharing all of these great tips and stories with us. I think listeners are going to get a lot, a lot out of it. I really appreciate your kind words. All, all I can hope to do by sharing these things to lead by example, you know, and, and to, to pave a way and show people that they, they can live more consciously in, in an accessible way. So I really appreciate you giving me a platform and the opportunity to talk about all these different things that we got into today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Explorer and You podcast. Don't worry, we have a new episode every week. Subscribe so you don't miss it. And don't forget to visit explorerandyou.com for more inspiration and tips. If you want to share the love, you're welcome to send this podcast to others. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.